If we profess to know and to follow Christ, then his teachings should be desirable and delightful to us. And if we look into his teachings near the end of the Gospels, they each record, at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, a scene where he's asked a question about the greatest commandment. And Jesus summarizes it, the whole Old Testament, if you will, saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And that you would love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second that he says is like unto it. Therefore, for Christ to teach and explain what it is to follow him and to know and obey the words of God to his creation, we must love the Lord and love our neighbors. And one way to define loving your neighbor is that you're speaking and acting in ways that are for their good. Just think about that for a moment. Loving our neighbor, what does that mean? Is this just like feeling positively? It's more than a, a feeling. It is to speak and act in ways that are for the good of the neighbor. You keep in mind, in other words, what they need, and you act accordingly. You discern what is for their good, and that actually influences, that actually influences what you do with them and what you do to them. One of the ways you love your neighbor, according to Proverbs 13 is you pursue wisdom. Your pursuit of wisdom is not only for your good. That's the idea. Your pursuit of wisdom will actually be also for the good of others. Wisdom in your life will bless the lives around you. Don't you want your relationship with others to bring honor and blessing to them? Don't you want your words and your actions to be life-giving and upbuilding and encouraging to the hearts of the people in your lives? Then, dear friend, seek wisdom like silver. Devote yourself to knowing God in His Word, to delight in His Word, to know what He has made known of Himself and His ways in the world and how the world is to work. Proverbs 13, in verses 22 to 25 helps us see various instances of how our pursuit of wisdom is for the good of others as well. And in verse 22, we turn to the subject of wealth. It does not appear here for the first time in Proverbs. We've seen it in multiple different ways. But like um, a recurring theme, uh, wealth occurs now again and later in Proverbs appears more. There are subjects that Proverbs addresses and does not leave it and say, well, we've talked about that already. Proverbs comes again and again to these subjects, knowing that life is a lot like that, too. That when it comes to dealing with financial matters or matters of friendships or matters of families and marriages and parenting or matters of dealing with work and discipline, we don't just need it once. In fact, our lives are structured in such that in a fallen world, our remembrances, our uh, tendencies and temptations, they are such that the Word of God must address us again and again in the very same kinds of areas of life. And one of the ways this is made most plainly manifest is in the structure of Proverbs, where here we come again to a subject of wealth and different things about these subjects each time, but nonetheless the subject of wealth broken, uh, brought up in verse 22. The writer says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. We're contrasting two individuals here, one called a good man and the other called the sinner. It's always helpful to keep in mind what categories these must mean because we want to recognize, in one sense, we're all sinners. We, we see this in the Old and the New Testaments, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, and we have all sinned. And we might even say, with Paul's words in Romans, that there is none righteous, none who is good in and of themselves. So what does it mean here that one is called a good man and another is called a sinner? A good man here must be understood in the light of the context of Proverbs up to this point. And in 13 chapters, that's quite a context, we understand the good man to be the one who fears the Lord, delights in the Lord, is pursuing wisdom. And it's not because that person isn't tempted with foolishness. 
It's not because that person hasn't sinned. It's because this person seeks what is good and the one who is good. And they become like what they worship. In other words, seeking the one who's, who is the fount of all goodness, who is the source of all life and blessing. We would expect that in worshiping and coming to know and to follow this one who is good, that we ourselves will become those who love and do what is good. This is called here a good man. Contrasted here with the sinner. The sinner in Proverbs is very specific. It's given in the latter line of a lot of Proverbs to identify what other terms would call the wicked or the unrighteous, the evildoer. The sinner here is not someone who simply has sinned. This is someone who is committed to their sin. They do not fear the Lord. They love what is unrighteous. They do not want to submit to the wisdom of God. They are the sinner. And the subject brought up among these two contrasting individuals, the good man and the sinner, is the subject of wealth and what happens to it. We're told in verse 22 that there's this inheritance laid up for the children's children of the righteous man, the good man. Well, that's, that's quite a long view of things because that's not even about the good man's ch- uh, children or that coming generation. This is the generation after the next I think the the impression we're to get from this verse is that this man who fears the Lord is not just thinking about his own window of days. Whether he lives 50 years, 60 or 80 or 90. He's thinking with a view toward the future and toward the people who might not even yet be. The good man is not just thinking about his own life and what will maximize his own pleasures and comforts. Leaving an inheritance to his children's children means this man works in a way, plans in a way, stewards in a way where he's living for something beyond himself. There is a view toward what is to come. That is such a good proverb in line with other patterns of reading the Old Testament and New Testament that emphasize the hopefulness and the future orientedness of the disciple. We're not just thinking about the present life. In fact, the views about the future affect the way that we think about the present. Here is someone who is living and managing and stewarding in a way to think about the future generation. Now, because Proverbs teaches about the ethic of work and discipline and criticizes and warns against the temptation of sluggardliness, we should not think verse 22 means he's storing up an inheritance so that nobody in the future will have to do anything. Now, that's not what is meant here at all, but it is to speak about someone who is thinking and managing in a way where he's not just focused on his own life. He's actually not even focused on just who's around right now, but even what is beyond him. Children's children, with a view of grandchildren, that is. But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Now, that's a surprise in the text. That's a twist in the story. Because you might have expected that the sinner's wealth would, and then who knows what we would fill in that blank with. The sinner's wealth laid up for the righteous. Wait a second, how does that happen? And there aren't any details here about what exactly that means. The surprise for the sinner is that the wealth does not remain with the wicked always. But instead, in the mysterious providences of God, what has been used for evil and accrued by evil, will not end up being a blessing to the wicked, but what others have been for evil, the Lord turns for good. And one of the examples in Israel's history to illustrate this would be their Egyptian captivity. Several writers have pointed to the truth that Israel, in reading something like Proverbs 13, 22, would know exactly what it would mean for the Egyptians' wealth to end up being laid up for the righteous where the Israelites leave having, let's call it, plundered the Egyptians, as they say. And that's not the only thing in their history. You can go back even earlier to the individual patriarch named Jacob, who enjoyed the wealth of his uncle Laban in Genesis 31. So while all the different details are not described here, there is an insistence on the providence of God that's working beyond what the wicked think they can manage. In other words, the wicked are not ultimately in control. 
In other words, no wicked are, you know what I'd like to do, you know, with my future inheritance and earnings? I really hope it goes to the righteous. I I don't imagine that that's what the money managing unrighteous mindset is thinking, but they are not given the final say. The Lord is God of heaven and earth. And it tells us here, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. And friends, if you fear the Lord this morning, I think what Proverbs 13.22 is insisting you have as a mindset is that you are not just living to maximize comfort, convenience, and pleasure for yourself beyond and above all. But you're actually thinking about others, not just around you, but in front of you in the future that might not have even come along yet. You're thinking generationally. And that's quite a mindset because it's not as if the generations would only benefit from what you can give them materially. Oh, it's more than that, friends. Israel understood that an inheritance for them as a nation involved covenant, promises, land. So in other words, when the Israelites know that God has promised something for them and they're heading into inheritance under his grace and provision, they're going into inheritance as those guided by the promises and words of the living God. And I think the writers are correct who say in verse 22, leaving an inheritance to one's children's children is not just about something materially passed on, but a way of living, a way of thinking about the world, a way of thinking about God. The Psalms are consumed with this. We will tell the next generation of your deeds, O God. We will proclaim your wonders to them. We will tell of your greatness. In other words, they are passing on an inheritance that's not merely material. They're thinking about how to think about and how to think on and live in the world God has made. One writer said believers will pass on the good that they have in the gospel as an inheritance that benefits the future generations. In other words, most fundamentally, at the core of this inheritance is one living for and honoring and stewarding the blessings of God. An Old Testament commentator says, what would happen if children were raised with the idea that they are receiving a way of life? Not stuff, not the material emphasis of things. What would happen, he says, if children were raised with the idea that they're receiving a way of life that's come down from generation to generation that is tested and sure. And that in receiving it, they find themselves as the new holder of the baton, so to speak, and they recognize the need for faithfulness and stewardship to continue speaking of God and what it means to know and walk with God as an inheritance for the coming generations. Part of what Proverbs emphasizes is the need for discipline in this life, for hard work in this life, for faithful labor, and no doubt verse 22 is connected to that as the good man has acquired something to pass on. So it's not void of faithful work and labor. It's absolutely um, wrapped up in that very idea. And in verse 23, the notion of faithful labor is given a qualification here because the unpredictable things of the world can include the following. Somebody works and somebody labors and they seek to be faithful, but they're not ultimately the ones in control. There can be things outside their control that influence and disrupt the best laid plans and efforts. So in verse 23, the threat of injustice is spoken about. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food. Let's stop that right there for a moment in the first half of this verse. What is fallow ground? It's not a phrase I use all the time, if ever. Fallow ground is something that for a season is unplanted. Ground that's been left unplanted for a time. And that there might be some future plan to return again to that ground, but for now the soil would be considered fallow ground, and therefore you're not coming to fallow ground counting on a big crop. In other words, if you went to fallow ground and you saw a few things growing and scattered here and there, that might be understandable. It'd be unreasonable if you were disappointed there wasn't much growth and much yield. The fallow ground of the poor 
would yield much food. This seems to speak of soil that, while left fallow for a season, begins to be worked by the poor, those who are day laborers and depending on the day's wages for the day's food. This would be the majority of the labor force in the ancient world. They are working hard, they are faithfully laboring, and they have people to support, maybe not just their own lives, but other family members and friends, people who are their children or people who are aging, and therefore their faithful work is invested such that even this fallow ground would yield much food. Now that would be a wonderful thing, because of such labor. You're looking at it and thinking, this is going to take a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of sweat. I'm going to toil a lot. But even those who would give themselves to it can make much produce happen. However, the curveball here in verse 23 is that others own the field. Others are the employer. Others are the wage payers. And it says here, it is, or the much food or much yield, swept away through injustice. So the benefit that the laborer would receive is disrupted by exploitation by other people. These are unrighteous decisions that affect others, which means not only does your pursuit of wisdom affect others, your dealings in folly and foolishness affect others as well. Here's an example. Here here are people who would have yielded much for their lives But through injustice, it is prevented. There aren't details here. What's been going on? Has a contract been violated? Perhaps. Have wages been promised and then shortened or denied altogether? Perhaps. Have hours been unjustly cut or new and unreasonable demands being imposed? Perhaps. Even all of the above. But the goal with those who are committing injustice is to manipulate and exploit They are going to defraud the one in order to enrich the other. And they themselves do what they do against those workers so that they themselves can be enriched at the expense of others in their employ. Believers in Yahweh not only know better, we must make sure we always do better. Believers in Yahweh have the opportunity and responsibility to live with generosity toward others, faithfulness toward others, keeping our word, and that whether we are employers or co-workers or employees, we are recognizing that our actions, our decisions at the job place, whatever your, your ground and soil looks like, just take it figuratively for a moment, whatever that is in your realm of life, that how you handle that will either bless and edify others or be toward their detriment. And if someone is sweeping away what would benefit others because they are acting unjustly, they have ceased to love their neighbor. They're loving money. They're loving whatever gain they think they can enrich themselves at. And the enrichment is at the cost of violating the ethic of Scripture. So when the Bible calls us to walk wisely, to love God and to love neighbor... That means we don't want to commit any injustice that not only would be a sin against God, but hurt the neighbor around us as well. I think the Old Testament commentator is right who says, the assumption in this verse is that some persons have worked hard and done everything in their power, but forces beyond their control have robbed them of their fruit. And the result is a lack of justice. In verses 22 and 23, not only are we given some examples about how our pursuit of wisdom or lack thereof will affect others, in verse 24, we are given the smallest context in which influencing others for the good is to be found, and that is the home. And we are given the time in life in which the earliest efforts to steer someone into wisdom and away from folly is given, and that is in the, in the stages of childhood. Verse 24 is connected to these previous ideas because living as a righteous man or pursuing justice and not committing injustice are all expressions of a heart that walks in discipline before the Lord, faithfully before the Lord, seeking what is good and the one who is good, the Lord. 
Verse 24 brings up the subject of the need to receive discipline. Now, already in verse 24, if you did not read this passage ahead of time, your eyebrows might have been raised a bit as I read through it earlier and you thought, okay, we're going to talk about physical discipline today. And we are for a bit, actually, yes. And it's a very controversial subject. You know this. I know this. We have to acknowledge out loud the challenges in the air we breathe culturally when something like verse 24 is spoken. Years ago, there was a child psychologist named John Valusek who told Parade Magazine the following thing. The way to stop violence in America, and I'm just going to pause right there because that's already an interesting claim, okay? And whatever the end of that sentence is, it's like, all right, I'm going to sit through the end of this scene here. What do you mean the way to stop violence in America? Because, you know, who wouldn't want that to happen, right? So he says... The way to stop violence in America is to stop spanking children. And in a speech to the Utah Association for Mental Health, Valasek declared parental spanking promotes the idea that violence against others is acceptable. And so what's being equated here is the idea of physical discipline equals violence and the acceptance thereof. Now, I don't agree with that, and other counselors and psychologists don't agree with that. There's a lot of debate within the psychological community these days about what is best for physical and emotional well-being. But um, as you know, ultimately the authority of Scripture is our guide when there is disagreement on fronts that can provide helpful information and helpful statistics and research on a myriad of different subjects. But we have to remember one key factor going on that the Bible is insistent on from the beginning. And that is when people are having children, they are having people who are then under the authority in their home. And in the fifth commandment, the children are told to honor your father and your mother. There was a book some years ago written by Leonard Sachs called The Collapse of Parenting. And in The Collapse of Parenting, he tells stories about how parents will let all of their children decide everything about their life, what they eat, what they wear, what they drink, how they spend their time, where they go to school. And he says in this book, The Collapse of Parenting, over the past three decades, there has been a transfer of authority from the parents to the kids. We can imagine the cultural and societal effects of this where children would be growing up not looking to their parents as the authority, but rather looking to themselves as the authority. And even adults looking to the children, well, what do you think would be best? What would you like to be? Who do you think you are? One aspect of verse 24 that that is an image, a metaphor used here, and I think does speak of physical discipline, is this image of sparing the rod. And, and this here requires some unpacking, and I'm going to use uh, some quotes as well as some verses from Proverbs, but I want to talk about several things this morning. It's going to sound very list-like, and I don't mean it to, but just for the practical sake of talking about this from different angles, I want to correct some misunderstandings about physical discipline. I want to give some reasons why a parent might be refusing to, to discipline their child. And then I want to talk about some principles for physical discipline. So we're going to spend a little more time here on verse 24 uh, than on these other verses. But I think the practicality of this and perhaps the controversial nature of this, um, it, may, it warrants uh, some digging in here together corporately. Okay, So the image of the rod. Um, I think that this is an image of something that would be equivalent to like a wop or a spanking or a swat. And one writer says the principle of the rod is that a bit of pain in the present used in love will reap long-term fruit. I'm going to read that again. The principle of the rod is that a bit of pain in the present in love will reap long-term fruit. You see, verse 24 says, whoever spares the rod, which means refuses to or does not through and through neglect, does not discipline their child. I don't think the rod here is only an image for physical discipline, but I do think it includes it. We'll speak about other options in a moment. One pastor puts it this way. There's only one thing worse for a kid than being grounded or being popped or having his computer taken away. Being neglected. Being neglected. 
And in verse 24, it says, whoever spares the rod. And I think that language is meant to communicate whoever is neglecting something that is needful. Now, the reason that this is even a discussion in Proverbs is because of what the Bible teaches in this chapter or in this book elsewhere. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen 15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, automatically, we are at a worldview clash with cultural understandings around us. And they might think, well, a child might be immature, but to speak of folly or rebellion against God as something cultivated in the heart of the child, that in of itself requires a view of humanity from a biblical lens. And when the starting place and how hu- what the human condition is, when that is different from the cultural era around us, well, we're not surprised at various other things along the side, along the path that diverge as well. Even the verbs are very strong in this verse. Did you notice in verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates? It's like, really, Solomon? That's the word? You couldn't have like dialed it back a little bit, hates his son. And then it says, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline. So they're, they're putting right out there the dichotomy of hating and loving. But I think pastor and author Sam Storms is right with his words about the, the term hate here. He says, when Solomon says to spare the rod is to hate a child, he doesn't mean the parent has disdain and revulsion for the child. But he's speaking about unintended, long-term consequences. So what Storm says is, Solomon's point is that if you genuinely care about the long-term welfare of your children, you will take steps to redirect their path away from sin and destruction toward God. Because if you don't care about that, then in the matters that matter most, namely the spiritual welfare of your child, it's as if you hate them because you will not curb their words or behavior. You will not address their attitude and responses. You will not look at their their disobedience and misbehavior and deal with it. It's as if in the end you are showing a kind of hatred. So I think Storms is right. This is not some kind of emotional uh, revulsion toward a child. This is speaking about what the long-term unintended effect of that kind of neglect leads to. In Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child. In chapter 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself is a shame to his mother. A child left to himself, does that mean you leave him alone for a bit as you're going to the store? That's not what that refers to, is it? This is about parental neglect, isn't it? A child left to himself. You sort of let them raise themselves. Well, if folly is bound up in the heart of a child, that is a destructive parental strategy. So it requires us as people who are wanting to care about children and their future and not just the coming generation, but like the man in verse 22, your children's children, that you want to parent your children in a way that will even be a blessing to your grandchildren. Because the effect of neglect parentally, the effect, the effect of not disciplining your children, the effect of like letting the child just sort of do whatever they want, that will affect not only your child's life, but your children's children. So this is about taking a longer view of things and not showing what would turn out to be a kind of hatred. You think, well, I, don't, I would never want to do that. And of course, in our clear moments, in our right thinking, we would never want to show or have that kind of posture. One Old Testament scholar says, this admonition seems to point out that harm is, more harm is done, more harm is done to a child by withholding discipline than applying it. More harm is done to a child by withholding discipline than by applying it. The second half of this verse says, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It can also be translated in verse 24, he who loves him is early to discipline him. So that the diligence is something that's communicated with the word early. 
They're not just letting time pass. They're, they're getting on it. They're being diligent and intentional about it. But early, early is not talking about the time of the day. It's not saying we're all waking up in the morning. It's early, children. Come here for your discipline. You know, that's not, that's not what's happening here at all. This is, uh, this is not about time of day. It's about stage in life. Because if a child is growing, and in those years that unfold, if there is an inconsistency or a total neglect of discipline, good luck trying to install that later and trying to curb what will escalate and snowball into very intractable attitudes and behavior. I think what the writer is saying is that young children should have early on a pattern of healthy, godly instruction and discipline because you're trying to set a trajectory for their steps, for their feet. And you believe what the Bible says, that folly is bound up in your heart and your responsibility is to love and care for your child. So let's correct some misunderstandings about physical discipline. I want to correct four. First correction here. Number one, the Bible is not commending abuse. And it's easy in our culture, in fact, prominent in many countries who have outlawed spanking, and they would equate that with physical abuse. Not only does the Bible not commend abuse, the Bible forbids abuse. In Exodus 21 through 23, you are forbidden to mistreat and abuse those in your household. In fact, according to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10, the righteous will not even be cruel to their animals. So animals aren't even image bearers. And so there is a stewardship and faithfulness and care over these in our lives, whether animals or image bearers in our home, which should never be compromised by physical abuse. We're told in chapter 11 of Proverbs, verse 17, a man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. And cruelty is not something commended in Scripture. We would prohibit abuse as the Old and New Testaments do. Correction number two. The Bible is not just commending something that was for their time in the ancient world. As if there is no need for discipline in the lives of children in later generations. You know, that was just for the, the century of those reading the books of Solomon-like Proverbs. We, we might be tempted to wonder, though, because in our culture, it can seem as if maybe our, our advancements in all these different fields lead us to look at physical discipline in the ancient world as something just outdated, very primal, and we just know better. We're more enlightened. And we might think we actually can show greater love and care for the child by just doing away with those old practices. I think that would be too simplistic of a read of the situation there. The Bible is not just commending something that's just true for that time and not ours. Number three, proper physical discipline will not inflict lasting emotional damage on the child, but rather looks for their lasting long-term good. Proper physical discipline. That word proper is a very specific adjective here. Because absolutely... There are occasions where someone might come into a home from another home where they had been physically abused. Well, that's a very thorny situation because a child might come to live in your home after coming from a home where there was widespread mistreatment, neglect, and abuse. Well, then you're going to have to think with great discernment and care about how to address the attitudes and behavior of the child because there is a lot going on that has already caused a tremendous amount of trauma and damage. So I'm speaking with a generality here, knowing that there are qualifications and nuances that can come about with case-by-case -case examples. Now, we can't sort of delineate all the case-by-case -case examples. It's just to say, I'm aware of them and you're aware of them. But a general principle would be that proper physical discipline takes into account their long-term good and is not something that's afraid that if applied would cause great emotional long-term damage. In fact, if, it's in, if, uh, if we take Proverbs 13 seriously and the other principles in Proverbs seriously about the folly in the heart of the child, we will do more harm to children by neglecting to discipline them. Number four, and the last uh, misunderstanding to correct here, is that physical discipline, the correction would be physical discipline is not anti-gospel. Physical discipline is not anti-gospel. 
The Lord disciplines his children, Hebrews 12 tells us. In other words, we experience the care and loving correction and chastisement of the Lord. And listen, if anybody's not against the gospel, it's the Lord. Okay, so if the Lord disciplines his children, and in Hebrews 12, the writer draws upon discipline even in Proverbs 3, then we are recognizing that the Lord is our perfect heavenly father. I think one writer put it really well when she said, a friend of mine recently asked me when her son ignored her request to clean up his room, whether she should just show grace and go clean it up herself or apply the law and feel legalistic by making him do it anyway. And she says, I see this kind of thing from moms, especially young parents all the time. They're afraid to make their kids eat supper because they're afraid they're going to turn into little Pharisees. Well, this writer, this writer recognizes these are battles of authority. These are battles of authority. Whose will is going to triumph? Battles of authority. And the Lord wants us to recognize that in the world he has designed, we live in a world filled with different realms of authority requiring honor and respect. And the training ground for how young children will go and see other authority and structures in the world around them is the need to respect authority that has been structured in their home. Now, why wouldn't a parent physically discipline their child? I'm going to go through seven reasons very quickly here. Why wouldn't a parent give physical discipline? There could be more reasons than just these, but one example would be because they themselves had poor or harmful discipline when they were children. If they experienced harmful or abusive discipline when they were children, then that experience, and we understand why it would, it has negatively shaped the way they see the whole discussion. Number two, they need the child to like them. There's an affirmation issue here. They so need to be liked by the child, and they know if I discipline this child, that child is going to be mad at me. That child is going to be frustrated. That child is going to cry. And I don't want to do that because I want the child to like me and I need that affirmation. Number three, the parent feels bad when it happens. So the parent might withhold discipline from the child because the parent doesn't like the way he or she feels when they discipline the child. So in other words, I think the way Proverbs would put it is, it's not a withholding of discipline because they love the child It's a withholding of discipline because they're loving themselves. It's not because they're thinking of the needs of the child or what would be best for them. The parent just doesn't want to feel bad. Which is choosing self in that immediate sense above what would the the child need above all. Number four, maybe a parent withholds physical discipline from their child because they just, just give threats of discipline without ever following through. So there's a lot of talk about, well, if you do that, you know, we've told you not to do that. But then it never comes to a point where the disobedience is strongly addressed in anything more than a verbal sense. Number five, maybe the parent is just lazy. And proper, consistent physical discipline is hard. Doing it with self-control and love, ensuring that it never crosses any inappropriate lines or ever becomes abusive, this is challenging, and therefore it is easy to just not do it. So the parent is struggling then with what would be lazy, loving people, and I'm going to say this in a variety of contexts in our time in Proverbs, no doubt, but it certainly applies here. Loving people well will seem inconvenient at times. Loving people well will seem inconvenient at times. And so that, that can be a reason why a lot of discipline is just inconsistent, poorly applied, or not applied at all when it should be. It just seems inconvenient. And so the parent is choosing convenience rather than what would be beneficial long-term for the child. Number seven, or number six, maybe the parent has just been told physical discipline is bad. Bad for the child, and therefore they have a variety of connotations connected to that, and they want to avoid it because they have been told that it is bad. Or number seven, the parent doesn't believe any physical discipline will help. We will just simply employ other means. 
What would be some principles for physical discipline? This is the last list. I gave you one about uh, corrections uh, to misunderstandings. And then this uh, previous list of seven, why wouldn't a parent um, give physical discipline? What about principles for physical discipline? Number one, talk with other parents about how they discipline their children. I think this is a very helpful discussion. Our family has benefited from this. I know others in this place have benefited from this. Listen, you do not have to try to figure all of this out on your own. You should go and you should ask parents with children, how do you discipline disobedience? What sort of things do you discipline for? How early did you start? And what did you do that was age appropriate? Because you're trying to wrap your mind around all of that, right? So principle number one, Let it be a discussion among families and parents about how others have done this so that we can learn. It's a way of inviting a kind of informal or maybe even formal mentoring. Number two, be sensitive to the age of the child. In fact, if you're dealing with someone who is five versus someone who is 15, obviously there are various different kind of conversations and contexts that are there. Be sensitive to the age of the child. Number three, don't let your anger guide your discipline. And I think this is what people are most concerned about in themselves because we know that we might struggle with self-control when something has provoked us to the degree where we think it needs to be addressed with physical discipline. Melissa Kruger is right when she says, discipline is for the child's good, not for your anger. And that is a really important insight, I think. Discipline is for the child's good, not for your anger. If you're angry, she says, or frustrated, you should wait until you calm down before you discipline your child. Because rage and physical discipline could unhealthily be melded together. And then somebody might look back and think, yeah, this wasn't some sort of rightful and loving correction or discipline that I received. This was uh, in the line of something that just felt like uh, outlandish, cross-the-line punishment. So number three, don't let your anger guide your discipline. Number four, physical discipline should not be the only form of discipline you use. And probably not even the first form of discipline you use. Rather, Correction verbally, maybe that look, maybe your parents had one of those where you, they could just look at you and maybe your children know that same look because it's in your DNA as well. And so you, you've given that look and, uh, and, and you can, you can, you can uh, communicate with a look or with words what would be necessary in that moment. In other words, it's not as if every infraction would require something like this. In fact, the hope would be that the older the child would get, the fewer occasions of physical discipline would be necessary because there is a kind of training and submissiveness that's being joyfully embraced. The child wants to be wise and the child knows you love them and the child knows that you have their good in mind and the older they are getting, the more conversations you want to have. So when physical discipline is is not the only form of discipline you use, it would be including talking about what is right and wrong. No, it's difficult for, you know, a two and a half year old to process, okay? But you can talk with your six-year-old about why certain things are right and why certain things are wrong. Talking about what is right and what is wrong. Proactive parenting. You see, this fourth principle here, it's recognizing that physical discipline is the response to something. And if the only way you parent is reactively, Lord help us, we need Christian parenting that is more proactive than ever reactive. In other words, instruction, time, conversations, investment, love, these kinds of things, so that we are proactively parenting. We want to raise children in the fear and admonition and instruction of the Lord. And that means our dealings with them are not merely responding with physical discipline. It means we care about their lives. These people are going to stand before God. And they're not, they're not uh, you know, to, to be my slave in the home. These are children who are going to grow up and they're going to have ways of thinking about the world. And I've got to talk and increasingly in proportion so about the matters of life, and that means um, proactive parenting. Number five, make sure your expectations are clear. Make sure your expectations are clear. It would be unwise to just physically discipline a child 
when they don't even understand why what they did would have been wrong or simply because you found something especially aggravating and irritating that might not even be a matter of sin, but a matter of preference on your part? Are the expectations clear? In other words, would a conversation include, what did you just do? What have we talked about with this? Do you realize this was wrong? In other words, trying to establish whether there was a clear expectation that can be rightly and justly followed by discipline. Number six, follow through on consequences. And consequences that you're willing to enforce, we should add. Not things like, you know, go in this room and you're not coming out for six months, or you're never talking to that other person as long as you live. You know, things that are just hyperbole. We know that if, if someone is really frustrated with something, you're not always choosing your phrasing the best. And so what you might need to do is go and think about proper consequences and not start speaking off the cuff in the moment and then come back and say, all right, we got to rethink everything that I just said. So follow through on consequences that you're willing to enforce. And if you don't follow through on consequences, you're teaching your children they don't have to take you seriously. You should include things like losses of privileges or even financial penalties if things get broken in your house through crazy behavior or intentionally. Maybe extra chores. Whatever the discipline, it needs to be something tailored to the child and effective. There are certain forms of discipline that might be perfectly effective for one child, and they might never need to get to a point where physical discipline is ever something frequent. Other forms of discipline, actually, that would be just as effective and for a particular child, especially incentivizing. Number seven, be consistent. Be consistent. Don't make disciplining your child dependent on what mood you're in. Be consistent. If the child is doing something that has been agreed upon in the home, that this is something we do not do, and they are defying your authority, if you don't happen to be in the mood to handling it, that's going to confuse your child when your mood changes at a later point, and then you are. Number eight, physical discipline should be followed by a restoration to fellowship. Physical discipline should be followed by a restoration to fellowship. We want to show love for our children. We're concerned. And as parents, our concern is not trying to dig our heels in because we want to get our way. We are concerned more about the child's heart before God and to shepherd and care for that heart, to love that heart, because this heart has been created by God to know God. And that, and that means my frustration as a parent can't be ultimately in the fact that they have done something disrespectful to me, even though that may be true. It is the fact that they are called to honor God, who is the source of all goodness and life and blessing and the right and wrong standard. Physical discipline should be followed by a restoration to fellowship. This principle number eight is such that in our loving discipline of our children, we're wanting to recognize disobedience brings a breach in fellowship. Something has happened. Something has to be addressed. But we don't want to remain alienated mentally and emotionally from anyone in our home. We want to bring restoration and reconciliation as quickly as possible. We want to hug our children and kiss our children. We want to express that we love them and that we care about them and that what we are doing, we do not find any gratification in doing. We want to ward them off from ways of wickedness and patterns of disobedience. Number nine, and lastly. Number nine, encourage and affirm your children when you see them following your instructions. You say, wait a second, how is that a principle for physical discipline? Because when you are encouraging and affirming your child, this principle of instructing your children involves recognizing and commending behaviors as you see them, not just correcting behaviors of disobedience. When you see your, your son or your daughter doing something that you know you would ask them to do, commend them for it. When you see them doing something that they were never asked to do that you know is good and right, celebrate that. Those are great achievements of seeking to show honor and respect and love, even in the childlike ways in which those things are expressed. But as a parent, you don't want to just have that cross your mind mentally and think, oh, well, look at that. All right, that's great. You should say it. You should build them up. Encourage and affirm them when you see them following your instructions. Now, I know that's a lot, friends. We've talked about various different lists. That's a lot to think about from different angles. We have one verse um, to deal with before we close our time. 
And in verse 25, we recognize that the category of the righteous and the category of the wicked are those who grow up in certain ways, with certain priorities, whose feet from even young ages have been steered and pointed. And the righteous need to know something as they grow. And the wicked need to fear something as they grow. The righteous need to know that in their hearts, they have been created with desires and longings to know God and to find satisfaction in Him that have been marred by sin, that have been disrupted by the effect of the fall. And in verse 25, the righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. And I don't think this is just limited to food. The word appetite there for the righteous is the word for soul. The inner man or woman. The the fact that we on the inside long and have appetite and long for satisfaction and fulfillment and the righteous finds that. And it's not because, you know, they, they have some sort of alignment of circumstances or financial situations. It's what they wanted. The righteous know God. And they find that in coming to know God and follow God, there is a satisfaction in him and a delight in him that is true. But the belly of the wicked suffers want. And it's not because the wicked don't have. We even spoke earlier, didn't we, in verse 23 about those who commit injustice to enrich themselves. Or in verse 22, the wealth of the sinner being laid up for the righteous. It's not to say that the wicked don't acquire. It's to say they can't ever know their fulfillment or satisfaction in those things. They were made to know God. The belly of the wicked suffers want, but the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Green pastures, still waters, coming to know God and be guided by God. That leads to a kind of steadiness of soul rooted in truth. It's different from the cravings of the wicked who want what is dishonorable to God. Who want what is harmful to their own soul. Who want what will mean their destruction in the path to come. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord loves us, cares for us, and disciplines us. In Hebrews 12, it says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The Lord is not neglectful of his children. Praise God. What wonderful, amazing news that his attentive mercies and grace and steadfast love, it is beyond what the heavens can reach and the depths of the sea could plumb. In verse 7, the writer says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of all spirits and live? So this is a call for all of us. This is a call for all of us. No matter matter the state and makeup of the family, no matter the temptations inwardly and outwardly, to recognize that in the end we are called to know God and to walk before him as his children. And he guides and disciplines. He satisfies and he reproves. He lifts up and he humbles. You can trust him. He is our father in heaven. And we pray for his will to be done. We pray for our sins to be remitted. We pray that he would bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. These things, friends, they they shape us because we are eager to grow in and be influenced by the worldview of the Bible. And that we would see ourselves, our children, our neighbors in a way that we realize, if I will pursue wisdom, that will be not only for my good, it will be for the good of those God has given me as well. Let's pray.